how many of you are ready to get into the Word of God? How many of you love the Word of God? Amen. Amen. We love the Word of God and the God who gave the Word. Amen. Well, we're going to get into 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to go through half, almost half of it. And I'm going to do a half a chapter every week. We're going to finish it in six weeks. And then we go to, no, not 1 Peter. I'm sorry, that's 10 weeks. Then 2 Peter, six weeks. And it is so good, so rich. I mean, can I tell you a secret? I like Wednesday nights almost better than Sundays. Shh, don't tell anybody. But I love getting into the meat of the word. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you tonight for your blessing. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Ghost, the great teacher of the church. Lord, I can't preach this and teach it without the anointing, and we can't understand it without the anointing. Lord, give us understanding tonight. Let the word go deep. And Lord, the seed go into good soil. And Lord, help us to walk with you and talk with you and grow in you and know you better than we ever have before. Breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, I receive your word sown into my soul. Let it bear much fruit in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. Sit down. <laughs> Amen. Good to see all of you here. I think we're through the worst of the summer. I'm hoping so. Today only hit 90. That's it. All righty. Tonight we're going to talk about your separation. Your separation. That is from the sin of the world, from the influence of the world, and separated taken out of the world and brought unto God, called out to be called in. You know, the Lord never calls you out, but what he's calling you out to call you in. Right? He never moves you out, but so that he can move you in. He's always taking you somewhere. Jesus was always saying, let's go over to the other side. He always had the disciples in motion. They never stagnated. You could not walk with Jesus and get stagnant. You just couldn't do it. Now, last time we finished chapter 1 by talking about the power and beauty of God's Word. That's how chapter 1 finished. Um, but let me just summarize again what First and Peter, or First and Second Peter are all about, why they were written, and when they were written. I want to remind us that Peter is writing to a church world where life has become dangerous for all believers. They're all under the gun. They're all being very persecuted by the wicked Roman emperor Nero who unleashed intense persecution during which time Peter and Paul were likely martyred. And it's important to keep in mind when First and Second Peter were written, the church was only a few years away from the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So when Jerusalem was destroyed, it's very difficult to explain what that did to the Jewish mind. Because that had always been home base. It's like if we were to wake up in the morning to the news that Washington, D.C. was no longer there. Now, for some of you, that would be good news. (laughs) But what I'm saying is, imagine that. Imagine waking up and and learning that it had been bombed or something, and there was no more Washington, D.C. It's like the center core of the operation of the country, the focus of the country was just gone. And in just a few years from these letters that Peter wrote, Jerusalem is destroyed. 
totally decimated, annihilated. It's what Jesus had predicted when he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And then he told the disciples, he said, the day is coming soon when not one stone is going to be left on on another in this temple. The temple is going to be completely leveled. This temple you're bragging on and this temple that you're so captivated by, it's going to be completely dismantled. It's going to be completely gone. Well, that was just like, you've got to be kidding me. I can't even imagine that. And so the church is only a few brief years away from that destruction. Over a million Jews were slaughtered when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. The rest of them were scattered to the four corners of the world. And guess what? They weren't regathered until 1948 as a nation. So they're scattered in 70 AD. They lost their homeland. They lost everything. The ones who lived were scattered all over the world, and they were persecuted day and night and night and day. They were always hounded, always chased, always ostracized, always criticized, always persecuted, the Jewish people, for all those centuries until Harry Truman was instrumental in declaring them a nation again in 1948, President Harry Truman. Now, so keep that in mind as we, as we read First Peter. They, they are years away, just a few years from catastrophe. And right now they're being persecuted. So Peter's first letter is written against the backdrop of a rapidly changing world where old landmarks are being removed and Christianity is in crisis. It is to these persecuted and troubled believers that he writes next about their separation from the sin and corruption of this evil world. So chapter 2 begins with the exhortation to lay aside. Everybody say lay aside. aside. The Greek, the feeling there in the Greek language is this. It's like you take off a jacket and lay it down. Like you would go home after church or something or, or in cold weather, you walk into a warm house, you take off a jacket and lay it down. See, before you're saved, you can't lay aside sin. But now that you're saved, you are empowered by the Holy Ghost to lay it aside. Take it off and lay it down. Amen? So look at verse 1, chapter 2. Therefore, laying aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. Now, I want you to think of Lazarus and the first thing Jesus said to him when he walked out of his tomb. You know, what a sight that was. Dead four days. And he comes walking out of that tomb all bound up in grave clothes. He's not free to move. He's, he's kind of shuffling out of there. But he's all bound up in grave clothes. First thing Jesus said was, read, it, read the first two words with me. Loosing. Let's say it like we're preaching. Loosing. Don't you love that? Let's say it again. Loose him and let him go. See, once you're resurrected, you need to shed the old grave clothes. So imagine that. Imagine malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. We're told to lay it aside like the grave clothes were taken off of Lazarus. He shed his vile, dirty grave clothes. And so Peter lists some of the sins that ruin the testimony of a believer and some of the sins that we should be shedding, laying aside, taking off, putting down now that we're born again. 
He lists four inward sins. Now, I forget, forgot to write one of them down here, so I'll give it to you. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy. Those are the inward sins. Envy is the missing one. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy are the inward sins we're to lay aside. And then one outward sin, evil speaking. Talking evil. Man, we can talk evil, can't we? Have you ever noticed that on the elementary school playground, they know how to talk evil? Man, we know how to talk evil from the time we can talk, period. We talk evil. All right? So let's start with malice. Malice just has to do with an evil disposition. You, you, just, you are just bent towards evil. You do bad things. And that's what the old man does, the old nature. You don't have to teach the old nature to sin. The old nature sins just fine without any instruction. Okay? So malice is just the evil disposition. The unborn-again nature is to sin, to do evil, to do wrong. Then he says, lay aside guile. Now, guile is from a Greek word meaning bait or a snare, and it refers to being deceitful. Remember when Jesus encountered Nathanael, and he said, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. He was saying, Nathanael, I know you, even though I've never met you, I know you, and you are not a deceitful man. You're not a deceitful man. So lay aside malice, lay aside guile, and then hypocrisy. Now, that conveys the idea of an actor putting on a show on a stage. Jesus hated hypocrisy. And Peter had often heard him denouncing the Pharisees for being hypocrites. Man, he was rough on those Pharisees. Amen. And what was he always calling them? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. He was, Jesus was, listen, he was not politically correct. Amen. I mean, he, he called it like he saw it. And so we're to lay aside, we're to lay aside hypocrisy. That means claiming one thing but living another. Amen. Living duplicitously. Yeah. Saying, you know, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Oh yeah, I believe in God. Oh yeah, I believe in the Bible. But then in your lifestyle, you're living totally opposite. You're not living it. You're not walking it out. So that's hypocrisy. And then envy. Lay it aside. Refers to the feeling of ill will produced in the unregenerate heart. Upon hearing of somebody else's promotion or prosperity, we hear about somebody gets a raise, and, and we want to say, oh, that's just great. And inside we're thinking, you sorry, you rascal. <laughs> and if, they're, if they work where you work, you're also thinking, that should have been me. So envy is, is when you really have a reaction when somebody comes on good times. Now, envy and jealousy are evil twins. Envy is bothered with somebody else's success. Jealousy wants that success for itself. Envy is really bothered you got that beautiful brand new cherry red Corvette. Jealousy wants it. You with me? Now he says, lay those things aside. Take them off. It's an act of the will. It's an act of faith. By faith, you take them off and lay them down. Now, the word for evil speaking comes from a Greek word meaning to speak down someone. I like to call it defining somebody down. It means to defame or slander another person. Peter says, separate yourself from these things. You know, uh, evil speaking is, is, is when you, you're roasting somebody 
you're criticizing them, you're, you're tearing their character down, you're, you're joking at their expense, uh, you're, you're defining them down instead of defining them up. And if you're jealous of somebody or envious of somebody, that's what you tend to resort to, evil speaking about them. Peter just says all these things, these five things, four inward, one outward, I want you to lay them aside. Everybody say lay it aside. Well, see, he wouldn't tell us to do that if we couldn't do it. So by faith, you lay it aside. Say, boy, I'm feeling envy. Now you say, well, Jeff, then how can I defeat an emotion like envy? Go right up to them and congratulate them with your tongue. Congratulate them. Way to go. I rejoice with you. Because even though you don't feel it, you can say it. And James said, if you can say it, you can steer the ship of your whole life in that direction. So you say it. You say it, even if you don't feel it. Inside you're thinking, you dirty rascal, you got the raise. But you go up and say, hey, way to go. And that gives you the victory. <laughs> now, <laughs> we're having fun here on Wednesday night. Hi, everybody at home. All right, now. Now, he then describes the characteristics of our new life in Christ. And he describes it as separation by new birth from the old life. So let's deal with that one first. Verses 2 and 3, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now, one of the very first signs of a truly born-again person, I've noticed through the years, and it was true of me, a strong desire for the nourishing word of God. See, the reason, the fact that you're here on a Wednesday night when you could have been doing anything else, it shows that you've got a desire for the sincere milk and meat of the Word of God. And that's a sign of being born again. Amen. Hunger and thirst for the things of God. So, the greatest need for a newborn baby is care and nourishment so that it can grow. And that's why our local churches ought to be nurseries. Now, I've often said that a church should be a hospital for sinners and a watering hole for saints, and I truly believe that. We have people saved every week. Every week we have people saved. But we're, we're also a watering hole for saints. We're a hospital for sinners. We want you here. We want you. We want the alcoholics. We want the drug addicts. We want the prostitutes. We want the up-and-outers. We want the down-and-outers. We want the in-betweeners. We want you if your hair is green, purple, blue, or pink. We don't care. We want you here because we want, we want to see people changed by Jesus. All right? So we're also a nursery. We're always taking care of newborn Christians. Now, one of the first signs of uh, a new Christian being rightly fed is spiritual growth. He says that you may grow thereby. See, it's only natural to grow. If, if, we, if a little child is born, and let's say he reaches, oh, I don't know, here, and then he stops growing, we immediately get concerned there's something wrong. He should be continuing or she should be continuing to grow. It's, it's that way spiritually. See, if you reach a certain level and you stop, Something's wrong because we ought to be growing. I'm still growing. I'm going to be growing to the day I go home to be with Jesus. I, you know, I hope I love a little bit more than I did at this time last year. I hope I'm a little more patient. hope I have a little more wisdom. I've grown. We ought to be growing that you may grow thereby. It's only natural to grow and it's not natural to not grow. We want to see growth 
unstinted. This person has tasted, he says, that the Lord is gracious. They've experienced the goodness of God, and they're growing in their new life. Amen? And I'm going to tell you something. If you're faithful to this church, I promise you, you're going to grow. You know how I know you're going to grow? Because I'm ministering the Word of God. I don't have anything to tell you if it's not the Word of God. I'm preaching and teaching the Word of God. Because I know that's how you grow. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. So first, we have separation by birth. We've been born again. And so we have separation from this evil world by a new birth. Next, we see separation by belief from the old life. Verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Now here, Peter uses an illustration, calling Jesus a living stone. Now, the Greek word that he uses for living here is zoe, zoe. And Zoe refers to life in all of its forms, from the life of God himself right down to the most insignificant thing that's alive. You know, a weed out back, a little bug crawling along. You know, I've kind of gotten, in my older age, I don't like seeing anything killed. I even catch bugs walking across my floor, and I see them walking, and I go, there's a miracle of God. Because they're moving. Look how that bug is moving. Look how he's alive and he's sensing things and he's seeing things and he's moving. I'm not squashing that bug. And some of you are praying for me already. You're saying he's going, he's going really soft. But I'll, if I can catch him, I'll catch him. And I put him outside because I see anything. Now, if it's a mosquito, he's dead. Because he's out to get me. But with a lot of things that I used to never think about, I, I see God, the miracle of God's creation in it. Amen. And I go, wow, that thing, it, it's crawling, he's alive, he's animate, he's, he's got zoe. And so if I can save his life, I will. It's used of resurrection life, zoe, resurrection life, zoe, and eternal zoe, eternal life. Jesus, says Peter, is a living stone comprising both resurrection and eternal life in himself. You have the resurrection life of Jesus in you right now. The resurrection, the same power that raised him from the dead, the move across his dead body in that tomb resides in you right now. The resurrection life of Jesus is in you. And you know what? You already have eternal life. You don't die and get eternal life. The minute you're saved, you have eternal life. Amen. You've already got eternal life. Can we just say, Jesus, thank you for eternal life? Amen. Come on, thank you for eternal life. You're already eternally alive. Amen. You have eternal life right now. You're never going to die. Your body will stop one day, but not you. Amen. You have eternal life right now. And he is this life. Though a stone is not a living thing in the natural, this stone, capital S, is alive. Yeah. Amen? He's the living stone. When David Livingston, considered by many to be the greatest of missionaries, died alone in Africa, they found him kneeling beside his bed. He died in prayer. This great missionary. 
died in prayer, gave his whole life to Africa. The natives that he had reached for Christ cut out his heart and they buried it in his beloved Africa. Then they took his body and they handed it over to British authorities. It was transported back to England and laid to rest in Westminster Abbey. And I've been there and, and seen all those graves. It's amazing. Amid the mourning nation, the whole nation of England mourned over the death of David Livingston. Great, great man of God. The epitome of missionaries. A brass plate in the floor marks the spot. And a text tells the tale, quote, Other sheep have I, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. Referring to the African people he went and reached and gave his life for. This was his epitaph. But he also had another one. One of Britain's periodicals said it best across its front page in banner headlines. It read, granite may crumble, but this is living stone. Amen. Amen. Isn't that great? But now, such was the missionary, but such is our master, the Lord Jesus. He's a living stone. Amen. Amen. Now, next we see that the stone is discarded. Rejected, says Peter, indeed by men. Now, rejected comes from a Greek word meaning this, to reject as the result of disapproval. And that's exactly what the religious leaders did with Jesus. They disapproved of him. The Jewish religious leaders, who crucified Jesus? Who, who uh, instigated it? Who was the catalyst for his crucifixion? It was the Jewish religious leaders. They stoked the flames. They insisted he be crucified. They refused to allow Jesus to be released over Barabbas. It was was teachers of the Bible. It was teachers of Scripture who ought to have known better. But they disapproved of him. To reject as a result of disapproval. They disapproved of him. John writes in his gospel, he came to his own, his own being the Jew, and his own did not receive him. They rejected him from disapproval. Yet the good news is as many as received him, you can reject him, you can receive him, but you can't do anything else. You're going to reject him or receive him. There are, there's no other option. But to those who receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. This is the separation by belief. When you receive him, he separates you from this world and the sin of this world by belief in him. They might as well have tried to get rid of the son as to get rid of Jesus. For Peter writes that Jesus was chosen by God and precious. Then next, Peter brings the church into the picture. He says, now, let me talk straight to you, you believers. And he's talking to us by default. Let me talk straight to you. He says, you also. He was a living stone, but you also as living stones. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, you're a pretty living stone. You're a living stone. Now turn to the other side and say, you too. You're a pretty living stone. You're a living stone. You're a living stone. Amen? You also as living stones, here's what God's doing with you, are being built up a spiritual house. 
a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Not only is Jesus a living stone, he has made us to be living stones right alongside him as he was and is, so are we in this world. We are living stones in a spiritual house. God is building each one of us place right where the master wants us. Now, so when God looks down on a church, a real church, a living church, not a religiously dead church, not God's frozen chosen, but a really, truly born again living church, he sees a house, a spiritual house, and it's comprised of stones that he has laid in that house right where he wants them. So you don't just join a church. You join a vision, what God is doing through that church, and then you become a part of that house, a stone in that house. So every one matters. And he puts one here, and he puts another one here, and he places another one over there, and another one here. And, he, and, and we're all placed exactly where he wants us, and we comprise and we make up a spiritual house that is offering up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He even goes so far as to call us a holy priesthood. Not only are we living stones, we're part of a brand new priesthood called a holy priesthood. Now, in the Old Testament, little teaching here on the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, entrance into the priesthood was controlled by the Mosaic Levitical Code. And here it was restricted. Only the tribe of Levi and only the family of Aaron could be a priest. That was it. No one else. You had to be of Levi, of the tribe of Levi, and of the household of Aaron That's why it's called the Aaronic priesthood. You could not be a priest unless you were in the tribe of Levi and in the house of Aaron, in the lineage of Aaron, or you could never be a priest. So it was a select of the elect. It was the elites, only the family of Aaron. But now when Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn in half by the mighty invisible hand of God. And in doing so, when God did that, He was declaring to the whole world that the Old Testament system was now swept away. Totally swept away. The cross has rendered the entire Old Testament system of sacrifices null and void. And instead of Aaron, we now have Jesus as our priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, he's our great high priest, enthroned forever in heaven. But here's the good news. All of his blood-bought people are ordained of God to function as priests down here. Not only are you a living stone, listen carefully to me tonight, you're a priest. Well, that went over big. I know your wheels are thinking, well, what does that even mean, Pastor Jeff? Well, what did a priest do? A, a priest offered sacrifices to God. Our sacrifice, the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of prayer, the sacrifice of denying ourselves and living unto him, a living sacrifice. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living, what? Sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him. See, that's the act of a priest. We're not offering an animal Jesus has already been offered once for all, but we are offering ourselves. That's our reasonable service. 
That's what priests do. But priests also stand in the gap for other people in God's presence and pray for them. So as a priest, you have been called of God to stand in the presence of God on behalf of others. And God hears you. You're an intercessor. You're a prayer. You're one to go boldly into, the throne, into his presence. The throne of grace. That you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the hour of need. You have power with God in praying for other people. We offer the sacrifice of praise. We offer the sacrifice of prayer. We offer spiritual sacrifices. That's our purpose as priests, to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. So let's say together, I'm a living stone in the house of God, and I'm a priest in the presence of God. We ought to thank God for that. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. And Peter says this about our spiritual sacrifices. He says they are acceptable to God. Now, the word acceptable is from a Greek word meaning very favorably accepted. That means God likes our praise a whole lot. Very favorably accepted. When you go into God's presence and and you're praying for others, you say, God, I give so-and-so to you. I give my children to you. I give my spouse to you. I give my church to you. I give this lost person to you. And you pray. That's a spiritual sacrifice. And it says it's favorably accepted by God. Favorably accepted. He says, in other words, God's saying, I like it. Amen? Amen? Jesus Christ has literally blazed a trail for us to enter into the throne room of the universe. We can come now where only a handful of Old Testament priests were ever allowed to come. Right into the Holy of Holies to stand before the mercy seat. Wow. I know what you're thinking because I'm thinking the same thing. I should be praying more. If I have this kind of power with God in the place of prayer, I should be praying more. Because I'm a priest. I'm a living stone in in God's house. I'm a priest in God's presence. And so if I've got power with God through Jesus Christ and because of Jesus Christ, as a sort of under priest, a priest under him, then I should be praying more. Now next, Peter talks about the cornerstone himself. Therefore, verse 6, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Now he's quoting Isaiah 28, 16. And here's what Isaiah wrote. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation. Listen carefully to the prophet's words. I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation. We've been talking about foundations for five weeks. A tried stone. That means a proven stone. A precious cornerstone. A sure foundation. 
and whoever believes will not act hastily. Now, a little background again. When Isaiah wrote this, the world he lived in was coming apart. The northern kingdom, Israel, was about to be swept away by the Assyrians for its many sins. They were about to be taken captive by the Assyrians. And it was very, very grim when this happened. Because they were, they were taken captive, and unlike Judah, who returned from Babylonian captivity after 70 years, Israel never returned from Assyrian captivity. They just were, went scattered throughout the world, and they never regathered until 1948. So the Assyrian captivity of Israel was even worse. And Israel was 10 tribes, Judah 2. Judah was taken off into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Israel taken into Assyrian captivity forever, for good. 10 tribes. The scriptures had been largely forgotten by them. The people of Israel would soon be strangers in a strange land, listening to a babble of tongues and exposed to all kinds of strange and seductive philosophies and religions. They were being taken over to, taken to a strange land. They didn't even understand the language. And it's against this backdrop that Isaiah receives this vision of a cornerstone, a, a messianic figure coming into the world who would be a sure foundation In other words, he's bringing a word of hope to God's captive people. When when it couldn't have looked worse, he's bringing a word of hope. And he's introducing God's plan of the coming Messiah, who would be the cornerstone of a brand new foundation, the church of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying, that cornerstone has now arrived. And it's Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. So way back when Isaiah, centuries before when Isaiah prophesied it, when when nothing looked good at all, when everything looked grim, he said, God has not forsaken us. God hadn't left us. He's going to visit us with a cornerstone. And now, says Peter, he's here. He's Jesus. Thank God we've got a cornerstone. Now next, Peter says that the cornerstone, this cornerstone, this select cornerstone is destined to bring joy to some and judgment to others. He starts out with the joy for some. He says in verse 7, therefore to you who believe, he is precious. How many of you can say he's precious to me? To you who believe. Can't we say it? It's so easy to say, isn't it? To us who believe, he is precious. He is precious. He's beyond precious. To us who believe, he's precious. Precious means worthy of high honor, inexpressibly valuable. You can tell a lot about a person by what they hold dear, what they consider precious in their life. With some people, it's money. There isn't any doubt about it. Remember Scrooge counting his change all the time? Just sitting at the table counting his money? A lot of people think that way. And that's what they consider precious. To some, it's power. To to others, it's another person. And that's who they consider more precious than anything in all the universe. And let me tell you, I want to be careful here. But but here, let me, something I've observed. I've seen people put a person above Christ. I've seen them do it. I've seen a person, I've seen, well, they were married people. And I've seen them put a person even above Jesus 
to where they chose that person over Jesus. And let me tell you something. You can make an idol out of a person. You can make an idol out of anything. What's an idol? It's anything, anything that takes first place in your life over God. Anything. It can be animate, inanimate. We, we hear the word idol and we think of these little wooden figurines that, we, that they made back in Old Testament days. But, but an idol is, is whatever you have thrown in your heart above God. It can be a person, it can be a place, it can be a thing, it can be a dream, it can be, a, it can be many different things. So we need to be, that's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. He said, you're going to have to love me more than you love mother and father, son and daughter, husband or wife. You're going to have to love me more. Because anything that takes the place of God in our heart is an idol. And eventually... That idol will sting you. So you got to, you know, Lord, help me to throne, enthrone you above all other things. Even my spouse, even my children, even my little dog. I love my little dog. But, you know, you know love is a powerful thing. And if we're not careful, sometimes we can cross over and idolize something and, and it takes first place. Not so with Paul. Paul said, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of everything and count it but rubbish. I chose rubbish because it was a nicer translation. The King James says dung. I count everything I've lost for Jesus equivalent to dung. Jesus was precious to Paul, precious to Peter, and he's precious to those who believe. Amen? Amen. Joy for us, but now judgment for others because verse 8 says he's a stone of stumbling and he's a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Now, it's a fact of life. If you're not overtaken by Christ in this life, you will be overtaken by judgment. I'm going to say that again. If you are not overtaken by Christ in this life, you will be overtaken by judgment. To reject Jesus is to embrace a fierce judgment when all sins are laid bare before him. The stone you reject is the chief cornerstone upon which you will dash yourself. Um, You know, we live in a day, we live in a culture now that has become very blasphemous towards Christ. So-called comedians and comedians all the time. I mean, I've seen things come out of the mouths. I've heard things come out of the mouths of these comedians and comedians. uh, uh, And they think it's funny, but they'll say something about Christ. They'll say something about Jesus Christ straight out and they will blaspheme him. And I cringe and I hurt for them. And I say, oh God, because those words are going to be brought back to them at the judgment if they're not overtaken by Jesus in this life. It'll be played back. Every word you spoke against him, every word you uttered about him, every blasphemous thing that came out of your mouth, you're going you're gonna to answer. The stone you reject 
is the chief cornerstone. We've heard the nautical saying, dashed against the rocks, talking about a, a shipwreck. But on Judgment Day, every rejecter of Jesus is going to be dashed against the rock. Folks, this is serious stuff. Peter is letting us know how serious it is to reject Jesus. That's what he's letting us know. The expression stone of stumbling, he's a stone of stumbling in verse 8, indicates a loose stone lying in one's path that causes him to trip and fall. But this phrase also means to cut against. And so Peter is using two different pictures to let us know how serious it is to reject Christ. Not only are you going to trip and fall, but you're going to be cut. So Peter is using it to describe the seriousness of rejecting Christ. His warning grows even stronger with his use of the phrase, a rock of offense. The word for rock here is petra, which refers to a ledge, not a little rock in the road, but a ledge rising out of the ground. And the word offense is scandalon. I talked about this Sunday. Scandalon meaning scandal, and the idea is they stumble over this protruding, unavoidable rock called Jesus because they were scandalized by him. Scandalized. See, to you and me, when we heard the gospel, it was good news, but to some people, it's not good news at all. They're scandalized by the gospel. That is, they trip and fall, they stumble, they're offended at the call to repent and come to him. So, so there's this rock in the road, they trip over that, then there's this ledge coming up out of the road, and they hit that and they're cut by that. They, they are, they, they, it, they, they're scandalized by the claims of Christ. Oh, I've had people look right at me and curse me for sharing the gospel with them. Get up and storm out of the room. And I'm telling you, in our day right now, in our culture, it's very anti-Christ. Very anti-God, very anti-Bible. And there are, there are people who will curse you for bringing up Jesus. Curse you for it. I had a whole classroom walk out on me one time sharing Jesus with them. The whole class got up and walked out on me. Walked right out on me. Left me standing there. Only person left standing with me was one girl who was also a Christian. All the rest of them left. I was just sharing Jesus. He was a scandal to them. We've got to understand this. This is why you can be in an elevator and say, Buddha, nobody cares. Hey, Buddha, cool. You can be in an elevator and say, Muhammad, hey, all right. But you say, Jesus, like you love him, not cursing. If you, if you say his name cursing, they'll love you. But if you use it with affection, Jesus, yeah. I love Jesus. Woo, man, that commercial, raid commercial, where the bugs go, raid! It's like that. And they're, and they're hitting those buttons to get out of that elevator. Why? Because he scandalizes people. His claims bring a scandal or they bring a blessing. Jesus had literally scandalized the Jews of his day. They were outraged. He had scorned their Sabbath rules and their other regulations that weren't even biblical. They were infuriated at his claim to be God. So they rejected him. They stumbled over him. Peter says that not everybody is scandalized by him, but those who stumble at the word being disobedient, they're the ones scandalized. So you can expect two reactions when you share Jesus. 
It's going to be good news to some. It's going to be a scandal to others. Now, next, Peter turns to those for whom Jesus is precious. And he says to you and to me now, this is so good, but you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. And you are his special called out people. And then he tells us why. So that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now I love verse 10. You once were not a people. You didn't know God. You were out of the covenant. You weren't Jewish. You were a Gentile out there headed straight to hell. But now the people of God. Now you're the people of God. Now you are a part of God's house. Now you are a priesthood. You have obtained mercy. You have obtained mercy. And then he begins with God. So first he begins with God's sublime purpose. In the Old Testament, the Jews were God's chosen people. But now... God is introducing a whole new chosen people, the church. The church was born at Pentecost, and the church is going to be removed at the rapture. Amen? Amen. So there's God's sublime purpose. Next, there's God's sovereign priesthood. You are a royal priesthood. Now, we've talked about that earlier tonight. So briefly, he has made us, the book of Revelation says, he has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, so that we can intercede on behalf of others as the Old Testament priests did. So for you and me, there's a sublime purpose. For you and me, there's a sovereign priesthood. And then for you and me, we have God's secret principality. We are God's secret principality. He says, you are a holy nation. Now that word nation is ethnos. And it literally means race. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says that those who, uh, I'm thinking now, that we are a new species of being. We are a new species of being. 2 Corinthians 5.17, that's what it's telling us. We are a new species of being never before seen on earth. The church is a new species of being. It's a brand new race. It's the blood-bought race. We are a holy ethnos. I'm not saying that God has rejected Israel. He hasn't. But he has brought about a 2,000-plus-year postponement of Israel's divine destiny due to their rejection of Messiah. And he's waiting for the age of the Gentiles to finish. And that's us. So Peter reveals God's sublime purpose, his sovereign priesthood, his secret principality, a new nation, And finally, there are God's secured people. Read this with me. You are God's own special people. How does that make you feel? Make you feel better than evolution? Right? You know, my distant ancestor crawled out of some primordial sea and finally grew legs and started hopping around. And over billions and trillions and jillions of years, evolved finally into a human being. That makes me feel real special. (laughs) No. Here's the deal. You are God's special people. The church. 
We're heaven born and heaven bound. And no man will pluck us out of his hands. Amen. 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 So say with me, I've got a sublime purpose. I'm in a sovereign priesthood. I'm part of a secret principality. And I'm one of God's special people. Let's give the Lord a hand of praise tonight. Amen. 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 And I like this. I'm closing with this. Our calling, we got a calling. And it's to show forth his praises. Show forth his praises. Show forth means to tell out or to proclaim abroad what the Lord has done for us. So there's no such thing as a secret witness. You know, I often wonder, how's that work? Because they, it's an oxymoron. You can't be secret and be a witness. <laughs> right? So how does it work? You know, he oozes out of you and people go, ooh, I think I sense they're a Christian. <laughs> now that can help happen to a point, but we're to tell it. Amen. We're to tell it and show forth Amen. his praises. Amen. 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 Well, God is good. Let's stand together, can we? Well, I could just keep right on going. It's good stuff. And we can keep right on listening. Amen. Can we just go to the Lord and thank the Lord Jesus for being so good to us? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your blessing. Lord, we thank you that we are chosen. Thank you for calling us into a priesthood that we can hardly believe giving us grace in the presence of God and power with God in prayer when standing in the gap for others thank you Lord for making us a called out people for sanctifying us for separating us from this world and it's evil and thank you Lord that soon and very soon we're going to see the king and the church age will end Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.